Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Blake Crouch. His novels have been translated into 40 languages, and his short fiction has appeared in numerous publications, including Ellery Queen, Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, and The Fairy Dance. Crouch is creating a nine-episode adaptation of his novel Dark Matter for Apple TV+. And Blake's latest novel is Upgrade. New York Times bestselling writer Andy Weir wrote about Upgrade. Imaginative, perfectly paced, and extremely clever. Another killer read from Blake. Blake, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Upgrade, how would you describe the novel? It is a, at heart, sci-fi thriller. It's about a guy named Logan Ramsey with a tortured family legacy. His mother was a very famous geneticist, brilliant mind who, in her efforts to create something good, accidentally unleashed this horrible virus on the breadbasket of the world, which led to 200 million deaths. Um, kind of threw the world into decline. And, but that's all backstory. When we meet our hero, he is working for this gene protection agency, which is came to be in the wake of this great starvation, hoping to prevent something else like that from happening again. And he is on a raid trying to shut down this suspected dark lab when these ice bombs go off and expose him to something. And there's something might possibly be an upgrade across every conceivable level of what it means to be human. And I'm curious, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Upgrade? Um, I wanted to write something in the gene editing sphere after Dark Matter. I mean, what I've been doing kind of over the last few years is kind of just launching full bore into these big scientific topics like quantum mechanics for dark matter, time, memory for recursion, uh, like Wayward Pines was flash evolution and sort of the study of how societies evolve in closed systems. Um, so it, it always made sense to me that like gene editing would be the ultimate thing to write about because it's, it's, not as speculative as these other things. It's literally talking about the source code of our life, what it is to be a living creature on this planet. So I knew I wanted to generally tackle this topic. Uh, the problem was finding a way in and finding that sort of special character to embody the heart of the novel. And it was, a, it was a, a quite a long process getting there, to be honest with you. And I'm curious, if we could go back for a moment, what was your initial writing journey that led you to write and get your first stories and your debut novel published? So I wrote my first novel when I was a senior in high school, and I finished it in university um, when I was at the University of North Carolina. And I it was a failure. I tried to get an agent with it, and didn't find one. Not surprisingly, it was, it was my first attempt. It was also the sprawling family saga. And I thought, you know, maybe I should write 
something more along the lines of the movies and books I love to read. And at the time, I was really into Thomas Harris. So I wrote this book called Desert Places when I started it my, I think, sophomore year in college and finished it pretty quickly. And I was in the creative writing program at Chapel Hill, and I got this um, professor of mine named Bland Simpson to do an independent study with me, and he helped me edit the book, kind of taught me how to edit. And after I finished that independent study, I, I had a much tighter manuscript, and I went and got an agent, and eight months later, she had sold it to St. Martin's Press. That was 2001. That's great. Well, many of your novels, as you've mentioned, have a scientific underpinning in terms of the plot. I'm curious, do you read a lot of science nonfiction as you're thinking about ideas for future stories? I do. I'm just fascinated with emerging technology, with understanding how our species lives in this 21st century where the future is sort of here, but as um, I think uh, Gibson said, unevenly distributed. I, I think that's all fascinating. So I, I do, I take a bunch of periodicals and read everything I can. And I'm always on the lookout for that next topic of inquiry and fascination for me. That's it great. was gene editing last time. Uh, you know, I have, an, I have a notion of what the next thing will be. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of going through my process of learning as much as I can. That's great. Well, what was your writing process when you were working on Upgrade? And I'm curious if it's similar for all of your novels. Are you someone who does a lot of outlining before you start writing or do you just jump into the narrative? How does that work for you? Uh, I am pretty methodical in terms of when I start writing. I don't rush into it. Uh, I did that early on in my career and just wound up with a bunch of first chapters that went nowhere. So what I'll do is like for, and I'll just tell you what I'm doing for my current book, and it's pretty much what I've done for the last several. I'll have a general idea, general topic I'm interested in, and then I'll start journaling on them. Um, and for this book, I've been taking notes on it. I've probably got almost 100 pages in a journal just taking notes on it. I started before Christmas. And once I feel reasonably secure in kind of the sequence of events that happens up to the midpoint, I'll start writing. Um, I, I wish I knew the end when I started, but that just never seems to be the way it works for me. Maybe one day I'll know the end to a book and start writing. Uh, well, and in fact, I, there's one book I wrote when I knew the end and that was Wayward Pines because I knew there's no way I could start writing that book and not know what this big reveal was going to be. But for books that don't hinge on massive reveals, you kind of have to get into the narrative and understand the characters because the characters tend to point you towards the true and right ending. So once I've got that general sequence of events outlined through the midpoint, then I'll start writing. Um, and then it's sort of all bets are off. If it goes well, you know, then I'm cooking with gas, as they say. But it rarely goes well. The last few books have, <laughs> have uh, required me to throw out a lot of words. Well, you've done a lot of film and TV work. I'm curious, what's the difference for you with script writing versus when you're working on a prose novel? Well, it's it's a very, very different medium, which is a very obvious thing to say. But the other piece of it is I, I don't really write original scripts. All the script work I do is based on books that I've already written. 
So to a large extent, the characters are fleshed out. The plot is fleshed out. The themes are fleshed out. So when it comes to me turning my attention to an adaptation, well, yes, there are plenty of things I have to figure out. And, um, you know, it can definitely be frustrating. I, f I find the screenwriting, at least at this point, to be far easier than the novel writing because the novel writing is making a, a brand new story out of whole new cloth. I mean, it's just total creation. Whereas the screenwriting for me has always been an adaptation situation. Um, and I, I don't think I would ever, I mean, never say never, but I, I don't know why I would ever write an original screenplay. Um, I would much rather explore a new idea in prose and give myself that time to figure it out. And then once it's as great as it can be, then you turn your attention to a screenplay and if all goes well, it goes pretty quickly. That's great. And, and how is it going with, um, uh, the series that you're working for with Apple TV plus dark matter? It's going really well. We're in prep here in Chicago and, uh, are looking to start filming at some point this fall. That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? Mm. Um, Wow. It's a, it's a really, it's actually a hard one and an easy one. The easy answer is read a lot and write a lot. You have to get through a bunch of shit before you find the good stuff. And every, everyone has to do that. Um, so if you're not writing a lot, you know, you're just stretching out the period of time it takes you to get to the good stuff. Um, I would also say to write the kinds of books that you would read that you wish already existed, but didn't. Um, I would say, don't be afraid and not just don't be afraid, but you should be putting yourself, your life experience, not necessarily literally, but perhaps thematically into the stories because it, it tends to give them a real emotional resonance. I would say, don't be afraid to throw pages away. Um, for recursion, I think I threw out 40,000 words for upgrade. I threw out 70,000 words and just restarted the book after almost a year of working on it. Um, if it's, if you're starting out, you have the luxury of time, take as much time as you need to make your first novel as great as it can be. And you should take that time. Um, but also understand if you sell that first novel, you won't have that luxury the second time around. That's why second novels generally suck because someone had their entire life to write the first novel and they had maybe a year and a half to write the second one. And it's hard. Um, I guess the last thing I would say is like every book is, is different. And just, I've written, I don't know, maybe I, I've collaborated with people too. So I think I've written maybe 12 standalone books, like just where I, I just wrote the book and, and wasn't collaborating with someone. And it's still hard every time. Um, I, just because I've been doing this a long time, it, it doesn't make it easier. Each book sort of takes you back to square one. It has to, you have to figure out how to write this book. You can't just, there are lessons that you have gleaned from, you know, doing it for a long time, but each book is a whole new experience. And I'm curious if you can talk about having to throw out the 70,000 words. What, what made. Yeah. Um, a couple things. When I started writing, We'll, we'll call it Upgrade 1.0. Um, <laughs> I, I was sort of envisioning it as my Jurassic Park. And one of the things about gene editing is it's just such a wealth of material to buy because, you know, DNA 
gene modification applies to literally every any living thing. So you could be talking about curing illness, longevity, creating new creatures, uh, wiping out entire species. It, what it what it has to offer is seemingly infinite. And I went down a path um, that, while really cool and parts of it I loved, it it wasn't ultimately about how gene editing affects humanity. And I had gotten to a, what I wasn't even at the midway point of this book I was planning to write. And I was 70,000 words in, and I didn't know where the midpoint was. And I really didn't know what is this thing about. Um, and so I, I made the very hard decision to, to set it all aside and, and start over. And I kept some of the things. There were a couple of things I liked. I liked some of the characters, and I really loved that backstory, which I pitched to you at the beginning of this conversation. So I, I held on to that, but I pivoted everything and made it about how these emerging gene modification technologies have the potential to impact humanity for unimaginable good or unimaginable evil. And once I made that shift, I realized I was on the right track. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. mistaken you you have done some uh self-publishing or independent publishing earlier in your career what was that like for you and are you still interested in doing more of that um yeah so i mean my career has been a pretty from the publishing side of things a pretty uh interesting and varied one i started off with that book i was telling you about desert places and its sequel and a book called abandon and a book called snowbound those were all hardcover releases through St. Martin's Press. Um, and none of them found much of a wide audience. Part of that was, I, I just don't think I was with people who really believed in me, but also the books I were writing, um, with the exception of a band and were pretty, you know, specific. They were like horror thrillers and there's just a finite audience for those. So I, as I, after I published Snowbound, I was sort of faced with my inevitable career decline I, I wrote this book called Run, which I knew was the best thing I'd ever written up to that point in time. Uh, it's sort of been 2011. 
and I couldn't sell it. There were editors who were like, I read this in one sitting. I love this, but your track record is just so bad. I can't, I can't make the argument to my bosses to take this on. Uh, and I was very lucky with the timing because I'd already gotten the rights back for my first two novels from Zay Barton's press and had put them up on, on Kindle because KDP platform, I think emerged in 07 or 08. Right. I had dabbled around in it and I, and those were out and they were doing pretty good. In fact, they were doing so well. I was making more on those novels, these old novels on KDP and then the Nook store and Kobo. Then I was earning my day job at the time. And so I quit my day job, which was in hindsight, a great thing to do, but also really stupid because, you know, a few months of good royalties doesn't necessarily, you can't just bet on that continuing. Um, and I decided to self-publish this new novel run. It's, and it's the only thing I've ever released independently that was a new novel. And it really blew up and it did amazingly well. And I was making more money than I'd ever made before and having a much wider audience than I'd ever had. And it was sort of in that really st in that sweet spot of independent publishing when, you know, indie pub indie writers had a shot in the Kindle store if, of, of actually earning a living. I don't have no idea what it's like now. I haven't done it right. years and years and years and don't want to again. Um, and then that led into me releasing more of my backlist. So self-publishing more of my backlist, really kind of understanding that system at that point in time. And I'm talking about like basically 2010 to 2013, mm -hmm. that, that four year period where I was really tuned into what was going on in indie publishing. Um, but also I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall that we were in the boon and this in a bit of a bubble and that bubble right. burst because there's no way that the quality, you know, not to be shitty. And there are some great independent authors out there, um, but they are few and far between the quality generally does not stand up to traditionally published books just doesn't. Sure. And I didn't think there's any way this was going to continue and that Amazon and Barnes Noble and these platforms were going to allow independent publishing to go neck and neck with traditional publishing. So I started thinking about making my way back into traditional publishing, although in very different footing. I did a deal with, um, which is not, it's more of a hybrid. I went with Amazon publishing for my Wayward Pine series. And obviously the Fox show came out and that helped, but it just sold a ton of books and really my profile was rising. And, and that gave me the leverage, the platform when I had my first 140 pages of dark matter to make the switch from Amazon publishing to Penguin Random House. And, and you know, with, with that, the publication of dark matter and, and the subsequent books really changed my life in terms of my, how my career had been going uh, as a novelist. Gotcha. And what books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I just finished a book called come closer by Sarah Graham, which I loved. Um, I loved project Helberry by Andy Weir. I think it's one of the best books I've ever read. I mean, I know it came out I think last year and right now I'm listening to a really cool novel called the invisible life of Addie LaRue. Um, by the writer, I think Clitvia Schwab. Um, yeah, I love uh, Clara and the Sun. Uh, it's by the, by the Japanese-English novelist who wrote Never Let Me Go, Shiguro. Uh, th I, those are the ones that come to mind as, as 
really amazing. Oh, and this new new book I just blurbed. It'll be out, I think, this fall called The Mountain Under the Sea. But it's a new novel by um, Ray Naylor. It's a, like it's a thriller about the super intelligent pod of octopus that get discovered. And it's wild. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novel Upgrade? Uh, we check out my website, BlakeCrouch.com. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with New York Times bestselling author Blake Crouch. His latest novel is Upgrade. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Blake, thanks for doing this interview. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed Thank speaking you. with you. Great. Wonderful. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of a previous Blake Crouch novel, Recursion, read by John Lindstrom and Abby Creighton. Barry Sutton pulls over into the fire lane at the main entrance of the Poe building, an Art Deco tower glowing white in the illumination of its exterior sconces. He climbs out of his crown vic, rushes across the sidewalk, and pushes through the revolving door into the lobby. The night watchman is standing by the bank of elevators, holding one open as Barry hurries toward him, his shoes echoing off the marble. What floor? Barry asks as he steps into the elevator car. Forty-one. When you get up there, take a right and go all the way down the hall. More cops will be here in a minute. Tell them I said to hang back until I give a signal. The elevator races upward, belying the age of the building around it, and Barry's ears pop after a few seconds. When the doors finally part, he moves past a sign for a law firm. There's a light on here and there, but the floor stands mostly dark. He runs along the carpet, passing silent offices, a conference room, a break room, a library. The hallway finally opens into a reception area, that's paired with the largest office. In the dim light, the details are all in shades of gray. A sprawling mahogany desk buried under files and paperwork. A circular table covered in notepads and mugs of cold, bitter-smelling coffee. A wet bar stocked with expensive-looking bottles of scotch. A glowing aquarium that hums on the far side of the room and contains a small shark and several tropical fish. As Barry approaches the French doors, he silences his phone and removes his shoes. Taking the handle, he eases the door open and slips out onto the terrace. The surrounding skyscrapers of the Upper West Side look mystical in their luminous shrouds of fog. The noise of the city is loud and close, car horns ricocheting between the buildings and distant ambulances racing towards some other tragedy. The pinnacle of the Poe building is less than 50 feet above, a crown of glass and steel and gothic masonry. The woman sits 15 feet away beside an eroding gargoyle, her back to Barry, her legs dangling over the edge. He inches closer, the wet flagstones soaking through his socks. If he can get close enough without detection, he'll drag her off the edge before she knows what I smell your cologne, she says without looking back. He stops. She looks back at him and says, Another step and I'm gone. 
It's difficult to tell in the ambient light, but she appears to be in the vicinity of 40. She wears a dark blazer and matching skirt, and she must have been sitting out here for a while because her hair has been flattened by the mist. Who are you? She asks. Very sudden. I'm a detective in the Central Robbery Division of NYPD. They sent someone from the robbery? I happen to be closest. What's your name? Ann Voss Peters. May I call you Ann? Sure. Is there anyone I can call for you? She shakes her head. I'm going to step over here so you don't have to keep straining your neck to look at me. Barry moves away from her at an angle that also brings him to the parapet, eight feet down from where she's sitting. He glances once over the edge, his insides contracting. All right, let's hear it, she says. I'm sorry? Aren't you here to talk me off? Give it your best shot. He decided what he would say riding up in the elevator, recalling his suicide training. Now, squarely in the moment, he feels less confident. The only thing he's sure of is that his feet are freezing. I know everything feels hopeless to you in this moment, but this is just a moment, and moments pass. Anne stares straight down the side of the building, 400 feet to the street below, her palms flat against the stone that has been weathered by decades of acid rain. All she would have to do is push off. He suspects she's walking herself through the motions, tiptoeing up to the thought of doing it, amassing that final head of steam. He notices she's shivering. May I give you my jacket? He asks. I'm pretty sure you don't want to come any closer, detective. Why is that? I have FMS. Barry resists the urge to run. Of course, he's heard of false memory syndrome, but he's never known or met someone with the affliction, never breathed the same air. He isn't sure he should attempt to grab her now, doesn't even want to be this close. No, fuck that. If she moves to jump, he'll try to save her, and if he contracts FMS in the process, so be it. That's the risk you take becoming a cop. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts 
so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.